Hello and welcome to another episode of Shades Midweek, a podcast where we talk about theology, culture, and all things Shades. I'm Jonathan Hafes and I'm joined today in studio by Brad Brown and John Mark DeRoe. And today we have a special guest with us as well, Dr. Robert Smith Jr. Uh, Dr. Smith is a pastor, preacher, professor. Uh, he's been a personal mentor of mine and Brad and I have both had the opportunity to take his preaching class at Beeson Divinity School and we are just honored and humbled to get to sit at his feet today and learn from him as we discuss issues of racial injustice, uh, racial reconciliation, or as he would say, Christo conciliation. And we just, uh, yeah, we're just thankful to have this opportunity and hope you enjoy the conversation. Good morning, sir. I'm doing, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm looking forward to this call and this conversation. Family good? Uh, yes, my family is is doing well, and uh, I'm just yeah, well, I'm excited to have you join us this morning. Uh, it's not just me. Uh, brother, brother Bradford Brown is here as well. Oh, I knew that. I, I knew <laughs> that. I, I knew that. It's, Peter and John going to the temple. You guys are like soup and sandwich. You you belong together. So, how you doing, brother Brad? I'm doing well. It is so good to hear your voice. You too. How's your bride? She is doing well. Still working at Children's good. Hospital as a speech pathologist. So it's been a crazy I season. I know it has. Give her my regards, please. I will. We still talk about your sermon. At oh, college Jesus. night of worship. That was a powerful evening. Help us, Holy Spirit. Help us. We need you. We do have a third with us whom Good. I don't know that you've had the pleasure of meeting before, but uh, John Mark, our uh, our worship pastor, is with us. Oh, okay. Great. Hey, Dr. Hello, Smith. John. Hey, Dr. How Smith. are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Fine. You, you are double threat. You have two biblical names. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And both of them are gospel. That's <laughs> right. My, I have two older brothers, and they're named Luke and Matthew. So, Oh, my goodness. So that fills it up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, your wife's name is not Esther, is it? No. no. <laughs> oh, my, man. My wife's name is Ashley. However, he does have two sons. You want to tell him your son's names? My, my two sons' names are Moses and Zion. Oh, my goodness gracious. I love it. <laughs> I, I really, really love it. That's great. Well, Dr. Smith, uh, we uh, we want to use our time with you well this morning. And so uh, what what time do you need to be off this call by? Uh, by 12 midnight. <laughs> well, we will I'm use serious. we will use every ounce of that then. That's fine. <laughs> this is family. I'm not, you know, I'm with you guys. I'm in family. It's uh, family time. This is good. Oh, well, Doctor Smith, um, would you uh, would you pray for us yes, uh, before we have this conversation? That's what yes. I was going to ask about, Father. We do thank you for this invitation that you've uh, given to us, and it's one that uh, you conceived of in pre-existent eternity. 
So we ask that you will go before us, that you will prepare the way, that our conversation might be of such that you're glorified and those who listen will be edified, that we will be true to your word, that we will be confident in your word, that your word uh, will go forth and it will not return void, but will accomplish that for which it is sent. I pray, O oh God, that uh, you will speak. We have no idea who will listen and how it will uh, affect the, the hearer. But help us to be um, biblical, help us to be uh, experiential, and help us to be empathetic in what we say in a way that honors you. And then help us to be bold about your word and unflinching in talking about it. So I thank you for Jonathan, John, Mark. I thank you for Brad. I thank you for their families. And I thank you for the opportunity that you've given us again to get together around the word of God. We love you. Thank you for calling us as unworthy as we are to do something we can never do on our own. Therefore, we entrust even this moment to you. It is your moment. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, Dr. Smith, we do just thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning and just, just giving us uh, of your time. Um, it's it's a, You're giving us a gift. You really, really are. Yes. Yeah, and, uh, you're a gift. Well, you're a gift. Well, we wanted to begin um, simply by letting our listeners hear a little bit of your story. So could could you just tell us a little bit about um, where you're from, how you grew up, and how you came to faith, and, and maybe even describe a little bit of how you ended up becoming a, a pastor and professor? Well, I'm 71 years of age. I'm so this is a man. short story is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I was born... Um, the first time, May 26, 1949, in Knoxville, Tennessee, grew up there. My mother and father had uh, four children, my older sister, who is four years older than I am, than uh, uh, Robert Smith, Jr., and then um, a sister after me, and then a brother after me. My father's name is Robert Smith, Sr., my mother's name is Ozella Smith, who went to be with the Lord last year um, in March of 2019. Their last word she said to me was, little Robert, I'll see you in heaven, which, of course, uh, I hear that all the time from her. I still hear it. I'm still here, so it's a real joy. We moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, when I was four years of age in 1953. All four children were born. Uh, my little baby brother was um, six years old at the time. My mother uh, is, was a deaconess, which has no ordination authority at all. It's just the fact that she was married to my daddy, who was a deacon. So Mama uh, took care of uh, visiting the women um, in homes and, you know, changing beds and doing things uh, to minister to women, as well as um, um, other um, ministries that were strictly for women at our little church, Rose Chapel Baptist Church. Uh, I was saved when I was seven years of age under uh, Reverend Elijah Lee Alexander from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. He was an old-timer, tough. Um, and so I started going to Sunday school, uh, having to know the golden memory verse, because my little teacher was little at the time. I thought she was 
she was big, but she was only when I go up some size, she was only four four five. But she was tough. She could stop you at any time on the street or whatever. What's your golden memory of her? She had to know that. And um so we learned that. Um during Sunday school, uh, at any time the pastor would call on me or someone else to review the Sunday school lesson when all the classes assembled. You had to know, you had to be able to do that. I became a junior deacon when I was about nine. A junior deacon only meant that you had an opportunity to sit with the deacons on the front row. They led devotions, and every now and then they'd let you pray. They'd let you um, read a scripture. And because my feet dangled, because I was too too short for them to, you know, to sit on the pew and the, for them to touch the floor. But that was an important time in my life because my mother and father gave me over to my Eli, Reverend Eli Alexander, and he um, challenged me and he said to me, you will know the 24 articles of faith verbatim, which I had to know. But you will know the Baptist church covenant word for word. I had to know that. And if I didn't know that, then I got, um, at that time, I'd get a whipping. In other words, they wanted the word to be in you, and um, you had to go get your schoolwork done, do your church work, and if there's any time left, you could play. So he was a real disciplinarian. I didn't know what he was doing. He was shaping me for ministry. I had, had no idea what he was doing. And so that, that's what happened with me. At 14, I was teaching a deacon's class. I say all of this because I'm astounded at what God was doing. I don't say this out of arrogance. I say it because I am amazed. I stand amazed. Um, I was holding a, I did um, Bible study in the homes, teaching at 14. I was teaching Bible in my high school when they allowed it at that, that, that time. And at 17, God called me to preach. Uh, and at my church, uh, the church where God was called to preach, I uh, became the pastor of the church at 27 and pastored it for 20 years. I was an assistant pastor for 10, so I was with them for 28 years. And and the rest is is, is really history, having an opportunity to uh, share um, as a preaching resident at a church that was not Baptist. It was actually AME, but not a member there. But uh, the pastor was aged and asked me to come and do the 8 o'clock service, and I did that for 16 years. Um, sometimes, a lot of times, preaching both services. So, I mean, then at Beeson, at Southern Seminary, I was there 10 years as a student and five years as a professor, and now I'm in my 23rd year at Beeson Divinity School. So it's been a real joy, and God has um, just graced me. Um, I'm, 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 I'm blown away by His grace. I really am. Dr. Smith, if you are comfortable. Would you tell us about your experience growing up black in America and maybe speak a little bit about your involvement in the civil rights movement in the 60s? Sure. Um, grew up, like I said, in Cincinnati, 1953, so I was four years of age. I went to Cutter Junior High School, which was um, uh, really a black school. It was. It's a black community. We had white teachers. Um, music teachers, uh, physical education teachers, science teachers, and black, black and white. So um, mostly, uh, probably half and half, as I, as I recall it. Mm. Uh, and I don't really recall, brothers, any struggle at that time. 
uh, in our little community, um, all black. I don't. I don't want to call any real struggle between black and white because everybody, for the most part, that we were around, grew up with, was uh, they were black. People. So we moved to uh, Mount Auburn, which uh, is in Cincinnati, probably mm, from downtown where we live, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, uh, that I ran into um, a conflict. Uh, and it had to do with when I went to Rothenberg Elementary, fifth and sixth grade, that's when I went there. I'd been a cutter up from kindergarten to, uh, I'm not cutter, but um, Stowe School, I'm sorry, from kindergarten to uh, the fourth grade. When I went to Rothenburg, which was uh, predominantly a white school, I was athletic, and there was a young man there uh, who was literally the Fonz, if you remember, uh, happy, he was the Fonz, he really was. I do. The leather jacket, the um, Levi's, and all of that, and the, and and he had all of his cronies, and uh, he just he had his fan club, not only with the girls, but particularly with the young men, and they they feared him, and even the blacks uh, feared him, and I uh, he, I remember playing volleyball, and I was I'm I'm still very competitive, but uh, we were playing volleyball, and I think we beat them, and then. And I was based, I played baseball and, and uh, had an opportunity actually to go into the, to the uh, major leagues. But uh, I, I was, the Lord had blessed me with those gifts. And um, he, uh, we battled and I won. We played dodgeball. I, I tend to beat him. And he, um, he, he challenged me. And we fought. And I was the first, and I was told that I was the first one who ever stood up to him. And, um, you know, he, it, it was this whole thing of, um, of, of blacks cowering and, uh, yielding to, uh, his supremacy because of his figure and his popularity. And, uh, and I'm not, I'm not a person that, a militant individual, but I will, you know, at that time I would stand up for myself. So that stopped that. But in, in that, though, those days, yes, then I start, I, I hadn't heard the N-word before, but the, that was pretty prevalent uh, during that particular time. And then I, I began to notice uh, that there really was a difference in terms of how blacks were treated. Amazing thing was, even though I played for a black um, baseball team, my coach was white. Um, I had a lot of white um, young fellows and young women. Well, not women and girls. They were, we were just friends. That's friends. I remember a young man. Uh, I, uh, I would spend the night over his house. He'd spend the night over our house. We ate. We ate together. And so it was. It was. It was what God was doing, forming me into what He has made me. And that if my DNA will say racial reconciliation, which I call crystal conciliation because I don't believe the races have ever been united. I believe that the only possibility for them to be uh, one is through crystal conciliation, that is conciliation through Christ, not mandated or legislated, but uh, only in in the gospel. That's why John Mark and Brad Bradford and Jonathan Hayes and Robert Smith are one, because it's it's unity in Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's, that's I, I grew up in... Um, that became there were there were times in which uh, there was great tension because there was always this um, 
this sense of being better, supremacy, that was a, a real struggle. This is before the days of the Black Power Movement. Now, once I went to Hughes High School, um, I remember very well, uh, we were supposed to have graduation, June 1967. And uh, the graduation was canceled, not only our graduation, but all the graduations in the city uh, because that, that was being held downtown because of the race riots. Mm. And um, I lived in an area called Avondale, and uh, whites would be driving through the community. I remember them being um, uh, rocks being thrown at their cars and all kinds of things. It was a very terrible, very terrible time, terrible time. And um, so, uh, the, you know, the Watts area out in L.A., so the whole nation was undergoing that kind of um, that kind of conflagration, that kind of um, um, uh, incineration. Um, and uh, I, once again, uh, the Lord had uh, married me to people of all different ethnicities, and whites and blacks, some Hispanics, um, maybe a few Asians. I don't remember Native Americans. Uh, but yeah, that was, I mean, that was it. And, and I, I can look back and once again, I can trace, see my odyssey developing, my journey in life developing. And God was um, uh, just, just um, marrying me to people so that I recognized that we were different in terms of, of um, uh, the epidermis, the skin, but not deficient. That's always been important to me that we recognize our differences. All of us come from one person, or Adam and Eve, all of us. Mm. But uh, we are not deficient to each other. We're not superior or inferior. It's the church. There are many members, and there is diversity, but there is unity so that we complement each other, and the kingdom of, of, of God eschatologically that is in the future Revelation 5, 9, 7, 9 will consist of people from every nation, tribe, kindred, tongue, etc. So there again is that difference, but no deficiency at all, which is a beautiful thing to me. That's, that's the rainbow um, image for me, just mm. multicolored. It's beautiful to me, but it all has to come from one source, and that is from from the Lord who is the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. But you, you didn't ask me for all that, but that's, uh, that, that, that's, uh, that's my, uh, my growing up. That was beautiful. You're, you're already preaching, Dr. Smith. We, we might just give you the next 45 minutes. Yeah, we're, we're just sitting here. Just, <laughs> just, th- this is why we wanted to have this conversation. We just want to, to learn from you and from your experiences and, um, yeah, uh, could you tell us a, a little bit about uh, your involvement in the civil rights movement um, in the '60s? Yeah, my um, my involvement has been one like Howard Thurman, the celebrated African American uh, prophet, pastor, mystic, um, who um, uh, wrote a book that was incredibly significant then and even now used to be the dean of the chapel at um 
uh, Boston School of Theology, and greatly um, was was had a great influence on my father in the ministry, Dr. James Earl Massey, and uh, um, his book was is entitled Jesus and the Disinherited. Um, he affected Martin Luther King tremendously. He never participated in a march, but he was the theology behind the movement. He was the uh, counselor behind the movement. King uh, referred to him and consulted with him. Uh, so he, he, he represented what I call the iron rods that, uh, that kept the concrete together. King had enough sense to know how to call upon individuals who uh, would be in the movement but would be invisible. Uh, that that's kind of what my position uh, was. I um I, I did not march. Um, I preached and I demonstrated through uh, my visibility with blacks and whites. In fact, much of my ministry from age seventeen on, all fact, all the way through, much of it in the early days before I became a pastor from seventeen to twenty seven. I was preaching in white congregations, rural, uh, downtown, suburban, you name it. Um, I never understood that. I never understood. It's not that I disown my ethnicity or that blacks disown me. It's not it at all. It, it's, it's as if I became, as Paul was, the apostle to the Gentiles, I became the apostle to the white brothers and sisters. That's the way I put it. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Uh, that I would be asked and sought after and uh, and I would chair and I would always come um, as Robert Smith. I never had to sacrifice my authenticity and my uniqueness uh, to be accepted. All I needed to do was to preach the gospel and to love people and to be truthful with people. I remember that I'm really fast forwarding, forwarding now. This is Six years ago, so that would have I would have been nearly my in my about fifty years in ministry. Then I preached at a, a revival in Arkansas, and it was a they held a, in a, a gymnasium, not a gymnasium, but in a school and in the auditorium. They're beautiful. Uh, I was the only white person all uh, for the whole revival that was there. So it was Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night. That man there who. I noticed he'd come every night when he finally came down front and had tears in his eyes. He's my age. He says, uh, years ago, I would have never have come to hear you preach. He said, because you're black. But he said to me, and it, it touches me now, but I listened to you. And he heard me preach the gospel, not as a black preacher, but as a preacher who just happened to be black. Because that's how, what I call you guys. You guys are preachers who just happen to be white. In other words, you don't let your whiteness become the adjective that defines your preaching. You let your preaching define your whiteness. And that's important to me because um, it, it's because you've been called. Uh, that's, that's from preexistence. Um, and uh, God ordained you from the foundation of the world. But you just happen to be white. I just happen to be black. Somebody else happens to be red, brown, or yellow. Uh, those are temporary things that will not transcend or enter into eternity. But your 
Christianity or salvation will. Everything else has a time expiration date on it. Our whiteness, our blackness. But he said to me, with tears in his eyes, this big guy, and hugged me and cried because the gospel touched him. The gospel, not a black preacher, nothing about me, but the gospel touched him. He didn't have to tell me that. He could have just gotten the blessing and went on. But like that one Samaritan who was a leper out of the ten came back and said to Jesus, thank you. He came and hugged me and cried. And I mean, I've seen these kind of things. That's why uh, I'm, I have nothing but the gospel to deal with the causes, not symptoms, but causes. So I have been more of a living epistle rather than a walking epistle. Um, and have shared in meetings and shared in conferences and shared in the lives of people. That's been my great joy. Now, obviously, I don't oppose uh, the um, the marching. I, I mean, I've done some of that, but but not um, not Selma, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and much of it had to do with 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 family and and calling and that kind of thing. But mostly uh, had to do with the fact that I was marching, but I was marching in terms of people's lives. And I think it means, I think, I think all of us have to know what our calling is, and, and all of us are needed. All of us are needed uh, to make the statement from the gospel, in the context of the gospel, um, make that statement that will be transforming and not just um, kind of like a uh, Band-Aid on a terminal wound. So that's, that's kind of been, I've been kind of a, um, I don't put myself in the shoes of um, Howard Thurman. I don't mean that. My goodness, who can be a Howard Thurman? But, um, but that's my mentality uh, in, in many cases. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Smith, we are so appreciative of hearing um, about your, your background and growing up there. There's a lot in there that I, I didn't know even through our relationship through the years. And so it's just uh it's great to to get to hear um all all of uh all of that uh moving into the present um our hearts uh are are heavy because of uh the the death of George Floyd uh the rioting all the other events that we've witnessed uh here recently and as as three white pastors um i mean we we want to listen and learn from the voice of the black community from our black brothers and sisters in the faith uh would you tell us just how you've processed uh these events uh these past few weeks okay and this is obviously is not a corrective but tell you once again how i see you you're not three white pastors you're three pastors who happen to be white which means you and i have the same spirit not same color skin because we know this this is just for who's listening all three of us know this. All four of us know this. Um, and I say this to, to, to the ministers because I want them to understand, not only understand, but just absorb this matter of being a preacher black or a preacher white or a preacher red, brown, or yellow rather than a black preacher, white preacher, red, brown, or yellow preacher. Uh, the adjective must be, uh, not must not be colored. And um, so I, I, I say that. Uh, you heard me say it before, so I say that because um, I want everyone to, to, to know just um, 
how profound that 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 is. That that was told to me by my pastor, uh, Reverend Eli uh, Elijah Lee Alexander. He said, "Bobby, that's what he called me. Don't be a black preacher." I thought, "Well, that's strange. You're black." He said, "No, <laughs> be a preacher black. Don't be a black preacher. Be a preacher black." In other words, he was saying to me, "Don't let your blackness define you, because if you if it does, that's that's." You, you won't be able to preach outside of blackness, is what he was really saying. Uh, Manuel Lee Scott Sr., who used to, um, well, one of the preaching a lot of Southern Baptist conventions and conferences and so forth, um, used to say, I would not have a gospel that I couldn't preach on the other side of town. That's profound to me. So I want to be able to preach the gospel, never change it, preach the gospel that uh, and it's so um, expressive and expansive that I can preach it anywhere, and it, it can't be a um, a uh, a kind of limited gospel. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment. It's, it's got to be a gospel that has elasticity that doesn't break, and you don't have to adjust the gospel. Maybe you adjust the approach so you become all things to all people that you might win Christ. And Paul does this extremely well, whether he preaches at Antioch or Pisidia in uh, the 14th chapter of Acts. These are Jews. goes to the history uh, from Abraham. Jewish people are aware of that. Boom. Then in Acts 17, he's dealing with these men of Mars Hill, the philosophers, the, uh, the Greeks. And he starts with creation. But the gospel is there in both places. He just knows how to adapt to his audience without adapting the gospel, and I, that's important to me. Well, here's where I am with this. I think that uh, it's important for us not to take our eyes off of the calls uh, and and uh, be become obsessed with symptoms. I've said for years, racism is not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And I don't say that to be cute. I say that because skin is a manifestation of the cause, which is sin. And as long as we just deal with manifestations and symptoms, uh, it's like a tire. I remember years ago, a long time ago, when I couldn't afford to get another tire. I thought I couldn't. So I just uh, I had a slow leak, and I'd go and put 25 cents, I think it's 50 cents now, and uh, put some air in it. Run it for about two weeks, and I had to go and put another 25 cents in it. And and then what I was doing, and eventually, uh, the thing just went flat. Or you go get it plugged up, and then the risk of blowouts, all of that. I, I think when we deal with manifestations, what we do ultimately is fix uh, a situation temporarily. Then there's another George Floyd that will take place. Then there's another, and then there's another. I have to get to the cause. The cause is sin. The answer is the gospel. And I'll talk about that in a minute in terms of how we have truncated our definition of the gospel. I mean preachers and even the church. But um, I, 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 I want to focus on the gospel, why? Because it changes hearts. That's why we can have this conversation. That doesn't mean 
we agree on everything. I'm married. You all been married. And of course, Brad hadn't been married as long as we've been there. I don't know about John Mark, but you know, I don't know Wanda. I don't know Wanda. My first marriage uh, that ended after my wife died, the Lord called her home. So I've been married 50 years. I am not a veteran. I'm not even out of the kindergarten. I keep finding things. I can't become arrogant about, well, I got this together. Can't. So um, we learn from each other. Uh, but the one thing we all agree on is that the gospel uh, is the answer. So it gets to the cause. What is the cause of this sin? What are the symptoms? What we're seeing now? But, you know, when we moved to our house, been it now 35 years. And uh, I was so proud. You know, I'm not a mechanical kind of individual, handsy guy, I'm not. But I cut this lawn. It's a big lawn, big yard. I felt so proud because it had dandelions in the yard. But I got, I'm telling you, you're talking about being arrogant. I was so proud. <laughs> and it looked great. Three days later, the dandelions were back. I couldn't believe it because all I dealt was with what I saw. I didn't deal with the root. I didn't. So we had to get a, a lawn company to do all the spraying, kill the dandelion. You got to get to the root of it. And that is the heart of individuals. And legislation cannot get to the heart. Government can't get to the heart. Only the gospel gets there. Uh, so that's why I say that racism ultimately is a sin problem, which manifests itself as when it comes to skin. We see that. That's the manifestation of it. But it's not the root of it. God has made us uh, in uh, according to the Imago Dei. That is the image of God. So all four of us have come and all human beings have been made in God's image and after his likeness, which means, in essence, that we are related to each other in a creaturely way as God's creatures, God's offspring, naturally. Only in Christ are we God's children, born again. That's so it takes that, that experience. Now, if, that, if we can accept that, if I can accept that in you and you accept that in me, uh, we are on our way. But once I began, and, and we may not, and people may not say this, that's all oh, we're all equal and um, there's no superiority and all that kind of thing. But um, the way we treat each other um, belies what we're saying. I'm the grandfather of um, this the family I preached at a church. And this couple was uh, on the verge of terminating their decision to adopt uh, children uh, from Africa and other places. They had two uh, biological children, two white girls, and the husband and wife, a husband and wife are white. But uh, they were going to adopt a child from Africa. That was the first one. And But the process was so long, it was so expensive, they had given up. And the Lord sent me there from this church and, uh, to preach on adoption from Romans 8, um, that we can cry Abba, that kind of thing. We're the children of God, all that. And I did. They wrote me and said they felt that this was a message directly from God for them. They went on with the process. They adopted a boy from Africa. Um, and this boy apparently... Um, well, that's that's the email. 
the baboons had the boy. It's probably a situation in Africa where uh, mothers uh, who cannot uh, breastfeed the children any longer because there's no milk in the breast and people are starving. They can't uh, stand to see the children die in their arms. And it is not, uh, un, it's not totally uncommon for them to put them on the side of the road because they can't stand to see them die. But, but um, their email told me that this little boy, baby, infant, um, was in the hands of baboons. They were playing with the little boy. And this uh, black African woman uh, challenged the, the baboons. The baboons left the little boy. The little boy was saved. They called the little boy Moses, which, of course, means drawn out of the water. This, he was drawn out of the claws or drawn out of the paws, if you will, of the baboons. They adopted him. Um, dwarfism, um, other kind of things. They, they took and adopted uh, another African girl. Um, they adopted uh, a Filipino boy, dwarfism. They had short legs, short arms. They adopted a Asian, a China, Chinese girl. Um, so there's six children. And now they had a little boy who's white. And so they have seven children. I, when I go there, and I go there every year, eight years, I've been going there. I, I have to, they won't let, the granddaddy has to come to the house. Uh, watch them play. They love each other. Mom and daddy. That's mommy and daddy. Uh, I mean, they don't they don't know anything about racism. They know differences. They know that. Understand that their parents teach them. This is what this means. Yes, your skin is different, et cetera, but blah blah blah. They talk to them about the Bible, so they they understand that even at a young age. Well, both of them wrote me an email about a week ago, and it broke my heart. And um, the mother was saying, and and the husband as well, that their daughter. Uh, now this was the son. This was Moses. That he was, um, he came home with all with with just blobs of spit all over his face, and the uh, res- the reason for that was that the little white children had spit all over his face, mm. and they were trying to clean his face because they thought his face was dirty. They couldn't get the dirt from his face, uh, and then uh, of course there were times when they would have the children with them, and you imagine this family like this. And uh, the kids would be kind of playing, uh, especially the, the darker complected kids. And the, the, the parents would keep the children from them and thought maybe that they were not safe for them to be around. And well, sometimes in shopping centers, if, um, if white parents can be walking and um, a black person can come and they'll switch their purse to the other side, they don't mean it. But it's, it's something that's ingrained there and we need to think about that. I know when I first came to Beeson and I leave the office, which I typically do, 12 o'clock at night or whatever, and I drove through um, Mountain Brook. I didn't know Mountain Brook, uh, but it was a way to get home, to get to uh, Irondale. And I got stopped twice. One time I got stopped uh, because they said that um, I had a tail light out, uh, but I didn't. The other time I got stopped was because the police person said that uh, I was driving around in the neighborhood, which I wasn't. I only know one way to get home. So to avoid that, I just got on 20 and drove all the way out to uh, Porto Madrid or whatever that's called, way out of my way, so that I would not um, have any kind of conflict. Of course, when I showed them, they wanted to know my 
information I gave them then and gave them the fact that I was a professor at Beeson Divinity School at Sanford University, then the conversation changed. And they let me go without any problem. Well, those are experiences in which um, I've had, and, and it was important for me to represent Christ, you know, not to lose um, my cool. I'm not saying there's not a place for righteous indignation, but not at 12 o'clock midnight on a dark street when they pulled you over to the side. And you, you begin to fear, and it is a real thing. Um, so what I, I think is important for all of us, and since you're my brothers who just happen to be white, I think it's important to, to do what you're doing right now, because I, I, you, you let me just go on, on and talking, but you're listening. It has to be an incarnational experience. Um, I, it's interesting to me that Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 3.15, sits at the river Kibar, where the uh, exiles are there, and sits there and listens to them for seven days without saying a word. That's a preacher who doesn't say anything for seven days. That has probably never been done in history before because that's what we do. We talk, we preach. But he didn't say a word. He listened to their stories, how they missed being at home, uh, how they would probably not get back. And it's true. Many of them would not get back to their homeland. Uh, some would, rem would remain there. You know how soldiers will go into war and then they'll get married and then they'll come back to America. Lots of, lots of things, lots of things. Plus the ravaging of the temple and uh, the desolation of the land and all that. But he listened for seven days. And then when you read verse 22 of Ezekiel, God says to him, come up to the plain, which is this, the word plain is the same Hebrew word for valley in Ezekiel 37. Valley of dry bones. Come up here and I'm going to talk to you. And God speaks to him without interruption uh, from chapter 3, verse 24, uh, verse, verse 22, to chapter 11, verse 24. And Ezekiel doesn't say a word. So how, how long that takes? But that's eight, that's, uh, that's eight chapters. Then God says, now you go back and tell them what I said. Now, I think that he had listened to them. He listened to God. Now he could go back and speak with authority. That's not what Job's three friends did. In that uh, chapter 2 of Job, verses 11 to 13, his three friends come, and for seven days they sit and listen. They don't say a word. And then they take and utter their preconceived thoughts. This is happening to you, Job, because you sin. They didn't listen to God. They observed, and they brought with them what they had already determined. And it did not help Job at all. And I tell people the best ministry they gave to him was silence. And when they opened their mouth, uh, then everything went downhill. Mm. It's important for us to listen to each other. Uh, no, uh, um, I don't know if you know the movie, I'm going to go into all that black like me. So you can't become black. I can't become white. But I can walk with you, and you can walk with me. And as best as you can, uh, empathize uh, because you have gotten close enough to at least feel and maybe get a um, foretaste of what it's like to be black in America and understand that, yes, the looting is wrong. Yes, the killing is wrong. Yes, all that. But I got this. Why is this happening? 
is it just because of George Floyd or is it because of 41 years of this systemic racism in America? Is it because of all of the lynchings uh, that went without, uh, re- without any kind of punishment? Is it because of this and that? Is it because a black soldier could go and fight and risk his life and come back, be accepted in the foreign country, but come back here and but couldn't eat in a restaurant mm-hmm. and, um, you know, c- couldn't drink from a certain fountain and all that. It's, it's the build up of this over and over and over and over again. So we don't justify any of the, 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 the looting and all of it hadn't been that at all. It's just much of it has been uh, very, very peaceful. Mm-hmm. But to be able to feel that and sense um, why that has taken place. Once again, the etymology, the, the origination, the cause of this, not uh, the, not the uh, symptoms and, and not the manifestations, but the cause of it. So now you see white brothers and sisters in masses and politicians and sports personalities and um, Hollywood celebrities, white. Why? But they're trying to fight for a black cause? No. It's got to be got to be a cause of justice. I don't want you to love me because I'm black. No, I want you to love me because I'm Robert. I'm the essence of what you are, made in the image of God. Now, that's the cause. And so it is this, this, the, the, the significance of, of walking together, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among them, and they beheld his glory, the glory of the only God of Son of God, full of grace and truth. They beheld it. And John says, that which we have tasted and felt and seen. See, this, this, is, this is what Jesus did with us. And this is what we must do with, uh, with one another. So uh, that's, uh, that's kind of, uh, not kind of, that's really where I am. Now let me say this about, can I say a word about the gospel? Yes, Absolutely. by all uh, means. All right, all right. I think we have truncated the gospel. And we've made it into, it's, it's, it's two-pronged, well, it's more than that, but it's holistic. We preach the gospel, you all preach it, I preach it, I believe it, totally. Um, but oftentimes, uh, the spiritual um, trajectory is there, but the social trajectory is missing. We want the spiritual, we want folk to get to heaven, that's what that's what the gospel does. It liberates people mm. from sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the power of sin. One day we'll be saved from the presence of sin in, uh, in glory. But if that's all God was interested in and getting us to heaven, then once we got saved, he'd just take us out of here. You know, instant rapture, boom. No, uh, God is interested in uh, social ramifications as well. So now, Pastor... Uh, Hayes, you you preached on Romans 12, and you dealt with Romans 12, as I remember, 1 and 2. I'm not so sure you even dealt with uh, 2. You just dealt with a whole chapter <laughs> without going verse for verse in the few minutes that you had. It was a wonderful sermonic offering. But you brought up not only ethical imperatives, verses 9 to 21 of Romans 12, but you dealt with doctrinal indicatives. Salvation, this whole idea, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and on and on and on and on, this transformation, this metamorphosis. But the metamorphosis, the change spiritually, precedes the doctrinal 
in uh, the uh, the ethical imperatives. Um, that the salvation, boom. Now, what happens after that? Uh, let love be without dissimulation, which I think covers everything. It all comes out of that. Uh, it comes out of the womb of love, all of that. Um, and so I, I think there needs to be um, preaching, and I, I'm not talking about moralism, but reminding individuals that once the heart is changed, what we do with our hands must be changed. There must be um, some social ramifications. People cannot be allowed to be comfortable going to church and then using lynchings as an occasion for a sports um, attraction and watch a man get lynched or two or three black men get lynched singing Amazing Grace. It can't happen. Uh, that, that's, that's not acceptable. I'm not just talking about politically. I'm talking about with God. Uh, you worship me with your lips, Robert Smith, but your heart is far from me. You see, so that to me that um, that is a, that's a crucial thing. So I've, I've got to marry what the Lord does. Luke four, he says, "The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He's doing me to preach the gospel to the poor." What kind of poor? People who are just poor spiritually? Oh no, no, it's more than that. People who are poor uh, physically. People. Uh, the set at liberty, those who've been bruised, actually bruised, uh, the priest acceptable the year of our Lord, uh, setting uh, at liberty, um, those who have been in prison. Now, we know that's true because in Matthew 25, Jesus takes and concretizes it. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. Is that just spiritual hunger? No. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me, or you did. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was sick, you didn't take me in, or you did take me in. And what you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done unto me. So uh, that those have to be integrated. And what Jesus would do is use miracles, as you know, as a credentialization for his ministry. So that Nicodemus would say, uh, we know that your teacher comes from God. And I tell people, Nicodemus was not right. Jesus was not a teacher come from God. Uh, Jesus was God who came to teach, but the teacher came from God because you put him up there with just great teachers. No, he is God who came to teach. But he said, no one can do these miracles except the Lord be with him. So Jesus would do that. And this would draw people to what he came to do. And that was the preach the gospel. So I, I think, I think um, as um, um, uh, the great missiologist, Leslie Newbegin would say, Empty stomachs don't have ears. So if people who don't have anything to eat have to listen to us preach, uh, they won't hear us because they're hungry. So what do you do? You feed them, and then you feed them. And I think the church needs to bring in uh, not the social gospel in terms of socializing the gospel, but uh, gospelizing the social. Let the gospel speak to the social conditions rather than trying to socialize the gospel so that you don't have any gospel, but you just have a lot of social ministries. That doesn't, doesn't save anybody. I got to get folks saved and then uh, encourage them. Now, let us do the work of ministry, which deals with the holism of, of individuals. So I really am I'm calling for uh, an expansion of our definition 
of the gospel because the gospel saves, but uh, the gospel heals and the gospel puts families back together and the gospel blah, blah, on and on and on. It's, it's powerful. But the first thing, of course, is soteriology, that is salvation. But, uh, but then there, there are the ministries that come out of that, that uh, help people to see just how much God loves them holistically. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's really what I'm trying to say. Dr. Smith, all of that is so incredibly helpful just as we kind of think through these issues. I have two uh, follow-up questions for you um, based on what you were, were saying right there. First, as you, as you talk about our need to listen to one another, not, yeah. not, not just come with our already like preconceived notions of what we're going to yeah. say, like like Job's friends, but, but we need to actually sit, listen to one another, listen to God. Yeah before we speak. Um, and, and in, in the context of talking about that, you talked about, uh, systemic racism and, and I've found in a lot of my conversations, uh, with Christians who happen to be white, um, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to get it right. I'm going to take your rebuke. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I, I've, I've found in a lot of those conversations, there are many who are hesitant to embrace the idea of systemic racism or systemic oppression like they're they're willing to look at isolated incidents and say okay well yes this incident happened or that incident happened but but they're very hesitant to embrace this idea of systemic uh racism towards the black community how in in us sitting here and listening how can you help uh people to understand modern systemic racism okay well again it's it would never be under. It can be understood intellectually. Mm. Um, you can read about it, all that. Take a course on it and get an A plus. But if you don't ever spend time with people who don't look like you mm. and walk with them, you, Robert Smith, you'll never understand it. You'll never understand it. Um, I think it is for people who believe in the eschaton for us to spend time. For me to spend time with black people only, or most of my time with black people only, and never make a conscious effort to um, be involved in the lives and the events of people who don't look like me, then heaven is going to really be a tremendous shock for Robert Smith. If, if, if 95% of his time is spent with just black people, it's going to be a tremendous shock. I think right now this is... This is an opportunity for us to have an earthly orientation so that we can be prepared for the eternal reality of people who don't look like us. So uh, systemic racism would never be understood in isolation. There are people who might just say, well, you know, I'm not a racist. I've got, I've got, a, I've got a black friend or I've got a white friend or I've got a Chinese friend um, at our school. Uh, and I think this is true while well, I'm mean, on a campus. I want to make every effort, people who are custodians at night, who, and I'm not using this to make myself a hero. I don't mean that. Uh, but, you know, I, I need to make a conscious effort for those who are, are cleaning our bathrooms and cleaning our offices and all of that to speak to them. Uh, to minister to them, to pray for them. I've done it and be, become the pastor of, of them. They want that. They, they can't believe that a professor would speak with them and talk to them. 
I mean, I, think, I mean, they, I'm, I'm serious. I'm really serious, particularly those who are not uh, black. But I think that, uh, as Jesus would say, or as he said in John 4 and 4, we must needs go through Samaria. And you all know how to go from Judea to Galilee, how they would go around, even cross the Transjordan uh, territory or into it and then go around Samaria. That's avoidance theology. That will not work any longer. We cannot avoid Samaria. We've got to go through Samaria. And we can't have a kind of an accommodation where uh, theology where we just accommodate people or tolerate people and uh, just have them come to our church or we go to their church on Thanksgiving and serve meals. And then for the other 364 days, then, uh, then we have nothing to do again or just uh, you know, that's, that's the, it, it has to be a lived experience so, so much so that you become and I become more sensitized to it. And we, we train our children uh, and help them. Um, John Pastor, I hate you have young children. And I know you're, you're, you're training them because uh, the world has come to us. When I grew up, as I told you, my first school, for the most part, Cutter, not Cutter, but Stowe School was all black. Then when I went to the fifth grade, Rothenburg, then you had black and white, probably 60, 40. Uh, and, uh, but it's just black, white. Then I seldom an Asian kid. And then maybe an Hispanic. I can't remember Hispanic. Certainly no, uh, no Indians or Native Americans. None of that. Now on our street, we have people from India, Turkey, Italy, all over the world, France, France, all and on and on, some blacks, some whites, some, on one street. And that's the school they go to. So there has to be um, an opportunity for them to get to know each other, to appreciate each other, to know each other's history. Uh, and um, so that the, the, the world that they will live in, my grandkids will live in, um, will be a much more intelligent ones. We've been, we, we have been too uh, much of um isolated group and we've stayed in our own little group. We go to lunch, we eat, uh, the blacks eat with the blacks, the whites eat with the whites. And of course, I've talked to them about it. I even talked to the new students who come at Beeson. I said, look, you, you get to, don't just eat your white brother. Now you go and find you a black brother. You're, you're a black sister. You find your white sister. Let's not just have our little groups that we eat in. That's not what heaven is like. It's, it's, it's going to be like. And therefore, Jesus prays, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that uh, earth, in terms of the church, ought to be a Kodak moment of the future state of eternity. So we ought to be reflecting what heaven looks like right now. And one of the ways we do it is that we become intentional and uh, we begin to see systemic racism is much more difficult to see than individual racism. Uh, it, it's, it exists uh, with powerful people who continue to indoctrinate by what, it's, it's not always what we say that is wrong. That's not it. It's not that what we say, that what we're saying is wrong, it's what we're not saying. And that's what we have to deal with. What am I not saying that I should be saying? And um, so I, I would suggest that it's a risk for you guys, uh, for you guys to even be doing this uh, with a preacher who happened to be black. 
uh, it's, it's a risk, but it's going to take that kind of a risk. It's a risk to preach against, and, I, and please don't do this. Don't make white people, don't demonize white people, don't demonize blacks or reds or browns or yellows. Deal with sin. Sin. None of us have clean hands. And because of our omission and our silence sometimes, it lends support to what's going on. Robert Smith and all. So stick with that rather than to make people, you know, it's like folk get up and talk about the evil of sin. I mean, the evil of riches. And they don't realize that uh, Job and Abraham and maybe even the fact that uh, some of us have gone to Beeson. We are there because of Ralph Waldo Beeson, who gave all that money that we might, you know, no, no. So the, the problem is not money. It's the love of money. That's the root of all again, the root, the root, the root, not the fruit, but the root of all evil. So I would, I would, the, the systemic racism uh, is um, perpetuated by individuals who are powerful, who sit in uh, penthouses, who head um, multi-billion-dollar companies, who are great politicians, who pass legislation that continue to uh, perpetuate that kind of... It's much more difficult to... Because you don't have any names. Mm. And uh, you, you can't get to the root of it. You can't find individual. The individual who is perpetuating that oftentimes walk around uh, with crocs, uh, on their feet and cut off jeans and ride uh, an old car, and yet they are worth uh, millions and millions of dollars, but nobody knows that, you see. And uh, that individual might be the chairman of um, the deacon board at the church I pastor or some other powerful person. You remember Dr. Charles Carter who preached against racism when black women wanted to join his church and they came forward? And he took them in, and he was challenged by it, and the Klan challenged and all that. And folks said, look, if you do this, then we're gonna we're just going to leave and take our money with us. He said, well, just take your money with you. Mm. And it cost him uh, people who gave big money. And guess what the Lord did? Brought other folk there. And the uh, as, as he would tell it, uh, and as, as I remember it, that uh, the offering actually went up. But that takes a if you stand for truth and it's God's church and you stand for biblical justice, then God will honor you because you're honoring him. But it will take it will take that speaking truth in love and not just saying, well, I can't say this because it's going to upset some people. There's never been a sanctified troublemaker like Jesus. That's what he did all the time, all the time. And that's what we have to be, honestly. We have to be that way. Not intentionally, but when we have to do it, we speak it, and the people know, wow, he loves us. We don't like it, but like a good parent, he loves us. And that, that's it. They must not ever think that we don't love them. Oh, no, never. Dr. Smith, again, that's just helpful in thinking through uh, how how to help people um, see and discover uh, the, the, the heart of the issue. Um, that it really does happen in the context of incarnational relationships. It does. It does. Um, my my other follow up question uh, was was simply as you talk about 
you know, that we don't need to socialize the gospel. We need to gospelize the social, that, that, that the gospel, uh, is holistic and yeah. it does move us, uh, to action within the social realm. Um, yeah. my, my, my question is, um, what, what practical things do you think that, uh, the church can do, we can do, we can encourage our church to do, to, to, to be motivated by the gospel, um, but to, to also put hands and feet to that and to, to take action in the, in the social realm. What, that, that's probably the question that I get asked the most currently um, with, with everything that's going on is, is I get asked, you know, Pastor, what, what can I do? Um, and so uh, ha, ha, how would you answer that question? What would you be advising us and, and our church to, to be doing? Well, I, I don't think it's difficult. I really don't. Uh, again, the Imago Day, and I know the sincerity of that particular question. I believe that according to the rhythm of life that we are in every single day that God provides, if we're sensitive to it, and if the antenna is up, we'll catch it. This is an opportunity, not for social justice. No, no, no. That's secondary. Primary, this is an opportunity for the gospel to be on display. Now, what does that mean? That could mean, first, first of all, I don't, I don't want anyone to be frustrated because they can't save the world. I'm not going to do that. But you can take and change the atmosphere of the space, Robert Smith, that you live in. So that may mean on Thanksgiving Day, I am going to intentionally invite some family or some couple who does not look like me to have dinner with us. I want my children to get a chance to meet them, hear their story. I just want their presence in the house. I don't have any agenda. We'll have a meal, we'll sit down and talk, and we'll bid them good evening. Now that's just one start, Mm. and it's one time. But I'm telling you what a difference that may make. It doesn't even have to be a couple. Uh, it can be um, someone from a homeless shelter or something like that, or children for a home for the children, or, or I, I don't know. It, it's a it's it's a start, and it and within every day of uh, of life, um, op- an opportunity is going to present itself. I was getting this morning, for instance. I was at the um, Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles getting my driver's license. And I was talking to my pastor and uh, about preaching, and I suggested to him that he would consider um, preaching, and not this, this would be a Bible study since he's doing this like all of you guys are doing by Zoom and Facebook and all that, whatever that means. I'm just using those terms so <laughs> you all know what it means, seriously. And I suggested that. I said, why don't you look at First uh, Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of our God. You know, it moves all the way down from um, from um, uh, his, his leaving the throne, exaltation, I, I mean, um, leaving the throne, incarnation and crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, all of that. I said, it, it is a compendium of uh, biblical theology. I said, I think it's in, uh, I'm sure it's in First 
Timothy 3.16. I know 2 Timothy 3.16 is all scriptures give me inspiration of God. So I didn't have a Bible with me, but I was certain that was that was right. I knew it was right. He is a white, a, a sister who happens to be white. Now, we had talked a little bit about going in the Yadnaira license and all that. She got there uh, probably about seven. I'd been there for 45 minutes. And she she had been reading this book. I saw her reading it. And I'd been reading some things uh, that I'd written on the pad. And she heard me. She, she said, I'll check for it. So she took out a machine. And she read. She said, that's right, that's right, that's right. And I said, wow. She said, yeah, the word of God is uh, is quick. It's a two-edged sword. It, uh, I said, you're right, sister, she says. She says, yes, this is a great confession. We got to talking. Now, she is a sister who happened to be white. I'm a brother who happened to be black. We didn't even know we were related in Christ. But she took the opportunity. She wasn't eavesdropping. I wasn't screaming, but she heard me. She didn't have to do that. She wanted me to be helped. I, she knew I was talking to the pastor because I kept calling him that. And then there were other people. They got just a steal. Because here are two complete strangers talking about the word, and neither one of us have a physical Bible. And uh, it was a witness. Uh, that's the way Christians are supposed to behave. Uh, and I, I tell people, I don't want, I don't care whether you are a an independent, a, a, um, a Republican, or a Democrat. I want you to be a Christocrat. Because if you're a Christocrat, a Christocrat, it will inform your being a Republican, it will inform your being an independent, and it will inform your being a Democrat. I want the Christocratic um, influence to precede your political affiliation. That's what I want. Uh, because ultimately, you go to heaven, those names don't translate. They don't know. Heaven doesn't know the name Democrat or Republican or Independent. Heaven knows Christ. So I um, I was just moved by But that's normal. That's not on my calendar. My calendar said, well, about 10 minutes to 8 to 7.50, there'll be a woman who happens to be white. And uh, so I said, I don't know. <laughs> And I think we ought to take, when we're more sensitive to this, like I was telling you about these little children spitting all over this little boy's face and trying to clean his face. I had that happen to me when I preached at uh, my Bible college that I graduated from. And they asked me to come back and preach after I graduated years ago. And I preached and a little kid came up to me and uh, he kept rubbing my my hand, my skin, and he said to Daddy, Daddy, it won't come off. It won't come off. He thought my skin was dirty. Well, it's the parent's responsibility to teach him, no, son, your skin is just darker than yours. That's the way God made him. That's all. And yours is lighter. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different skin. That's all, son. Like they're red apples. They're also yellow apples. And on and on and on. That's all. But they're all apples. We're all human beings. So I just think these are teachable moments in which we can um, we can minister to people, uh, get out of our way, uh, say some things that would not necessarily uh, be what you would expect. I, I don't know what that might be, but um, but it, I, I just think 
uh, if I get out of my little world and just um, um, take advantage of what's happening during the day, because I want to be sensitive. What is God saying here? How can I minister to this individual? I don't care what they look like. It doesn't make any difference. I, I think it amazes, amazes us because we're trying to find things to do, opportunities, and they're all around us, but we don't see them. You know, Helen Keller said, the only thing that's worse being blind is having sight without vision. Hmm. That it's worse having sight and no vision than being blind. I think that's true. I think that we we have sight, but we have no vision. Therefore, we can't see, and we miss all kinds of opportunities. They don't have to be grandiose opportunities, Robert Smith. All they have to do is just be opportunities for me to do something that is unorthodox and unconventional uh, towards someone who doesn't look like me. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's, that, that's it. So I, that's what I would do. I would... I just, and I say this to people, you just live in the space God has given you and ask God to open your eyes and make you aware of an opportunity to represent him. And that's what that lady did this morning. She took advantage of just hearing me talk about not uh, about this particular text. And she just said, look, I'm looking, I'm looking for you. I just thought that was marvelous. Absolutely marvelous. That's what I mean. Dr. Smith, that is so good and so helpful and I think provides some needed clarity in the midst of so much confusion and charts a way forward for us to bear witness to the gospel in word and in deed in our own context. You've talked about humbling ourselves and listening to those who are different than us. Yes. Uh, I know that you know that one way that we can do that is by reading books from our brothers and sisters in the faith that are different than us, reading books yeah. from others that have come before us. And so I was wondering if there are any uh, resources that you would recommend as we think through everything that you have talked about today. Now, now Dr. Smith, before you answer this question, um, I, I once asked you for recommendations on preaching books and I received an annotated bibliography of well over a hundred volumes. So, um, so maybe, maybe so top, top three to five. <laughs> if you, if you got a hundred, I say go for it. No, no. I, um, I think it would be good. And, and again, this, this will be, these will be books. Perhaps there'll be books that you may not necessarily um, agree with in every point. I'm talking about Robert Smith. Some of the most helpful books for me have been uh, books that I have read and um, some of the views I detested. Uh, but I kept walking, working through it because it made me then, um, it made me, uh, think through the argument and I found some sense in it plus I can't argue with someone if I don't know what they're talking about mm. so that's why Dr. Thielman would would uh, I don't know if he does this now but I know when I came to Beeson students had to read Rudolf Bultmann and his, his demythologization and 
and all of that is for the New Testament, getting back to what Jesus said. Well, by the time you, you uh, like an onion, keep taking off layer after layer, then you know you don't have very very much. But see, that's I, I I'm not he he is not a demythologization de- de- uh, person, theomanism. But he knew this is a major New Testament scholar, and you need to know Bultmann so that you can put Bultmann and Bart together. You can't understand what Bart is arguing against if you don't know Bultmann. And I think I think evangelical. Um, people who are people of the book. We, we need to get away from this selected canon of uh, readings that we do mm. and uh, get out into the deep uh, and trust the Bible. You don't have to defend the Bible. As Spurgeon said, you don't need to defend the lion, let it go. But <laughs> get out and read some stuff that, um, that will challenge you. Understand uh, these death of God individuals. Why did they arrive at that? Some of them come out of the church. So, okay. Uh, so some of the books uh, on race, there's a book called, I cannot think of the, the, uh, the author's name, Ain't No Difference in the Fair. Ain't No Difference in the Fair. But it revolves around the, the life, work, and ministry of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But that's the title of it. Ain't no difference in the fair. And, and of course, you can you know it's, it's dealing with uh, civil rights and Rosa Parks and all that. So if Jonathan Hayes uh, wants to get on the bus uh, and I want to get on the same bus, guess how much it's going to cost me? It's going to cost me what it cost him. And therefore, I ought to be able to sit where I want to sit, wherever the seat is uh, available, the same way with him. And that was a big struggle with the civil rights movement. You get on the bus, but you got to go to the back. So why should you go to the back when there ain't no difference in the fair? That's one of the books. And, of course, a scholarly mind, um, the stack pole of everything was, is built around Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That's one, mm. one of the books. Um, it would be good to read uh, the work of uh, Cornell West, Race Matters. He has been touted as uh, the, the, uh, the greatest I have to be careful with those words, but that's what they say. Black intellectual today. That name should um, that that should be on on, on the, the the list hmm. of um, Christians who happen to be white and anyone else um, who are really interested in that, because he's going to give you great history, and uh, you, you you may not end up with where he is, but at least you'll be able to follow him, and he'll he'll be able to to synthesize and integrate thought. So whether it's race matters or whatever, any of it. And then Toni Morrison's work uh, in African-American, she went, uh, she left us about a year ago. Um, uh, the, Afri- the, the African-American and the blues, something like that, I can't remember. But anything she does, you know, she's like Ma Angelou. Uh, that's another one. It would be really, really helpful to read the, um, the side of the black females. Uh, any of those works uh, from those two women particularly uh, would really, really, um, would really, really be helpful. Now I'm going, I'm going to say something about uh, the Helmut Tilaka, who is, of course, my favorite um, theologian, <clears throat> white uh, in terms of um, his uh, ethnicity, um, and uh, um, has written a, a book. 
um, called uh, Between Heaven and Earth, Conversations with American Christians. And this book came about as a result of his uh, speaking, lecturing, and having conversations with American college and university students. Uh, I think it was in 1963 when he came, but he came over here several times. And he, there's 10 issues, but one, the one issue has to do with race. He has 10 issues. One is glossolalia, and the other has to do with the inerrancy of Scripture. But I'm talking about the other uh, one on race, in which he talks, in which he says, if America continues to treat the Negro people the way um, they are being treated by them, then America stands in great jeopardy to uh, having the same um, result happen to them as the people of Germany. That is devastation. That's really what he says. The way the Germans treated the Jews and what happened to them ultimately uh, is the same kind of fate that America uh, is facing if they continue to mistreat the Negro people. Well, of course, I think he said, I can't, I think he said this at Princeton, but wherever he said it at, they never invited him again. Never. Because he spoke true. That he spoke true. So the work of, of, um, Tilaka, his African diary, he'd, he'd travel all these places and write up a diary. And there he went to South Africa, spoke against apartheid, and met with great resistance, never got invited again. But uh, I, would, I, I would say uh, the same thing when he went over to Australia and the Maori people and the Aborigines and all of that. Uh, he was just drawn to, to those um, I think that's why King liked him, but drawn to uh, to those who are marginalized and disenfranchised. You see it. He's a white brother, but you see it in his work. And he was he was fearless. He stood for truth, and uh, suffered a lot as a result of it. Uh, losing his job, uh, being fired by the Hitler regime and the board and the education um, department of there, and so forth and so on. But yeah, I, I think that, that that's that's good there. A couple uh there there are a lot, but a couple of women, like I said, Tony Morrison and Maya Angelou, uh throw in uh, my brother Helmut Tilica, um throw in um Cornell West, um and 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 um um uh, two guys by the name, one of them you know real well, his name is uh, Tony Evans. And the other, his name is Dwight, Dwight McKissick. They did a book on race 30 years ago, maybe 35 years ago, which is really, really helpful um, as relates to um, the individualization of different races. And of course, they're writing from a, a ethnographic uh, and a geographical perspective uh, that that is under the umbrella that are under the umbrella of scripture. So that's what I like about it because uh, that's the final authority. But uh, those are those are few. Those are few. Well, I know that you are someone that believes that good, faithful preaching is important for the formation of the people of God. Are there any preachers who are black that you would recommend that we listen to? Oh, no, you, you've got to hear H.B. Charles Jr. You have to hear Charlie Dates. Like uh, John Piper, his heroes are dead, 
as he would say. So you got to hear E.K. Bailey. I mean, you got to hear him. But I say you, I mean anyone. Mm. Um, the the guard, the tailors, yes. Um, you got to hear Manuel Lee Scott Sr. You got to hear um, a, a, a Frederick Sampson Sr. I'm talking about guys who are sold out to scripture and um, expository, sometimes in different forms, um, narrative exposition by Frederick Sampson Sr., who passed it uh, the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Detroit. Uh, those individuals that, that absolutely must be uh, heard, and some of them, like I said, and there are many others, Sandy Ray, uh, Cornerstone Baptist Church in Brooklyn, uh, William Augustus Jones that we had in for the 1997 lectures, uh, William E. Conger Jr. lectures at Beeson Divinity School. I think it was 1997. No, I came in 97, so it, it was 2000 and something. Uh, yeah, those are those are persons, the living and uh, and the dead. Uh, just uh, and there's some just the E.K. Bailey um, Expositor Conference features a lot of these uh, these guys. And the the the, um, uh, the H.B. Charles Jr. Uh, Expositor Preaching Conference, the same. And uh, what both of them do, and it's a marvelous thing, is and that was E.K. Bailey's uh, desire, was to let the conference reflect a racial reconciliation. So he would have the best of black and white, whether it was Warren Wisby, Wisby or Gene Mims or... Um, Cindy Gradanus or Brian Chapel, um, Timothy George has been there, Frank Thielman has been there, uh, you name it. I mean, all over the world. And in order to image what the body of Christ is like, that that we need each other. Uh, I need Jonathan Hayes. I need Brad Bradford. I need John Mark. I'm not complete without you guys. We need each other because all of us are gifted differently. So I draw from you guys and that helps me to be more complete rather than to uh, be an ivory tower kind of preacher and do my own studies in an isolated way and I don't draw from anybody else. I think I'm fooling myself then. Yeah, that's that's what I would suggest. Some of these great conferences that are being held, I just named two of them that would be, I think, exceptional. Might I just add in my unbiased opinion and and tell all of our listeners you've you've got to hear robert smith jr (laughs) well he must he must he must be added to that list of names you know it was i think it was it may have been festus who said or phoenix one of the two he said to paul he says much learning has made you mad is what he says so so past days much learning has made you mad for you to say make that kind of statement that's insane Idiot. No, no, they they know I they know I'm speaking the truth. You know I'm speaking the truth. Well, Doctor Smith, um, we are so incredibly grateful uh, for the time you have given to oh. us this morning and and to our listeners as well. You humbled me. I've had fun. You know I love you. I love all of you. So this has been a treat. I told you I couldn't wait. So thank you for having me. It's a real privilege to represent Christ. Thank you. This has been another episode of Shades Midweek. 
if you would like to see a list of the resources that Dr. Smith recommended, you can do so underneath the description in the podcast. You can also get that list by emailing us at midweek at shadesvalley.org. Thank you so much for listening.